Hello, everyone, and welcome again to another episode of the Grok Science Show. I'm Tom Stewart, one of your co-hosts, joined by scientist, professor, doctor, Mr. Sleeman Bensmeyer, who is a neuroscientist at the University of Chicago in the Department of Organismal Biology and Anatomy. His research is on how our brain works, how our hands work, and how they work together. Thanks for joining. Thanks for having me. We can jump right into it. Uh, I'll let you kind of define what you do so I don't accidentally mischaracterize your science. The sure. big picture, the, the sort of general rubric uh, under which our work falls is neural coding. So we try to understand how different patterns of activity in the nervous system, neural activity in the nervous system, sort of stands for things out in the environment, which allows us to navigate through our environment, interact with it in sort of useful and productive ways. And so our work is to try to understand these very basic questions about neural coding, about how the brain encodes information about the external world. Uh, but more specifically, obviously, and that's a big topic, and that's basically describes most of neuroscience. What we're interested in is to understand the sense of touch and proprioception. So touch, everyone knows what touch is. You know, when you grasp an object in your hand, you have information about its shape, about its size, about its texture. If it's moving across your hand, you can tell that it's moving and what direction it's moving in. So that depends on, on the sense of touch in part and also on the sense of proprioception. So the other thing, you, the other information you have is I can move your hand around or I can make your fingers do things and you can sort of track what your fingers are doing. So some part of your brain is sort of keeping track of what shape your hand is in. And so that's another broad topic of research in the lab. Touch is actually many senses in one. It turns out that there are are a variety of different types of receptors in your skin. So receptors that respond, you know, anytime you poke your skin or touch something with your skin, that contact with objects is dependent on these receptors in, in your skin that respond to the, to contact with objects. And there are different types of, of receptors that, diff, that respond in different ways to contact with objects. And that's one of the things we spent a lot of time doing in the past. I think that's now pretty well understood. And that is to understand what exactly do these receptors care about? What, is, what aspects of object contact and the exploration of objects do these receptors respond to? when you grasp an object in your hand or even when you look at it, at something or you hear something, well, that depends on a pattern of neural activity in your nervous system. And the idea is if you could reproduce that pattern of neural activity through artificial means, you could reproduce these percepts. You could actually generate artificial percepts. And so, you know, well, what's the application of that? Well, the application of that is, say, let's say you're blind, right? And you want to, to, to restore vision. Well, if you were, for instance, able to take the output of a camera and convert the output of a camera into patterns of electrical stimulation of visual neurons to, to produce patterns of activities uh, of activity in these visual neurons that mimics the patterns of activity that would be producing these neurons with intact eyes, then perhaps you could restore vision. So of course, that's not what I work on. I work on, now suppose you've lost a limb or you have an upper spinal cord injury. So either you, the limb is not there or it's no longer attached to the brain. What we're working on is how to restore the sense of touch by electrically stimulating the brain. And the idea is if we can reproduce patterns of activation in the brain that would be produced with a intact arm, can we actually restore touch? And, and to what extent can we restore touch? So how is it that you go about studying this? We spent the last 20 years trying to understand exactly how is it that that touch is encoded in the nerve first and then in the brain. So we know what we're shooting for. We know what kinds of patterns of activation, I mean, to some, some level of approximation. Of course, we don't understand everything, unfortunately. But at some level of approximation, we understand how the brain encodes touch in the intact organism. And so now what we're trying to do is 
reproduce these natural patterns of neural activity by electrically stimulating the brain. And so your work involves humans sometimes? It involves humans. I mean, most of the experiments that we do is uh, in monkeys, where we try to basically see if we can get these monkeys to feel things through prosthetic arms. And the idea is to eventually take these algorithms that we're developing in the lab and translate them into the clinic so that tetraplegic patients or amputees could then benefit from these technologies. I mean, what's, what's remarkable is the robotics technology and the advances that have been made there, where you have these arms that have all the capabilities of a native human arm, pretty much, that are really squarely in the domain of science fiction, right, when you look at them, and they're fully sensorized. There are sensors in these arms that, that are analogous to the sensors that we have in our arm. So then in principle, if we could connect these Robotic these robotic arms tools, to the yeah. nervous system in a smart way, then we could actually get people to use them as, as we do our, our native arms. My first introduction to the kind of stuff that you are up to came years ago on YouTube, and I came across the video of a monkey in a chair controlling a computer with its mind. Right, yeah. And that, that video is just kind of iconic among nerds, at least. I don't know how broadly the public is familiar with well, it. Well, now they can, now monkeys can control robotic arms with their minds. Yeah. Uh, so, so we have some, some colleagues at Pitt and at Caltech and other places, really, even here at UChicago and Northwestern, that get monkeys to control robotic arms. So the sort of the basic strategy for that study was to record from the brain as animals are moving their limbs, record neurons and translate what the signals are that are there into basically a spatial map of up, down, left, right. Is that correct? And Pretty then... much. So, you know, the idea is there's a part of your brain that sends signals to the muscles in your arms to move it. If your arm is amputated or if it's no longer connected to the brain, that part of the brain is still there. And anytime you imagine moving your arm, there are patterns of neural activity in that part of the brain that are basically the, the same as before your arms were was severed. And so the idea is to decode motor intention from these patterns of neural activity to get the arm to move. And so that's fantastic. You know, from a scientific standpoint, you see that and you're like, whoa, that's way cool. Yeah. Right. But it's also completely useless from a clinical standpoint, because first of all, you know, you have to stick electrodes in the, in your brain to make that work. And, you know, you don't necessarily want to do that unless there's a good reason for that. And if you look at what the animals or even the human patients, because human patients have been implanted with these kinds of electrodes, what they're capable of doing with their arms is, let's say, underwhelming. It's very slow, very effortful, very clumsy for them to do anything. And and so what we claim, and uh, and we have reason to believe is true, is that a large part of the problem is that there are no sensory signals coming back from these robotic arms to to tell the patients or the animals the consequences of their actions. So just to take a step back, anytime you're manipulating an object, you have all these signals from your hand that tell you, that give you information about this object. And without this information, you would suck at using your hands. And this is, you know, so don't try this at home. But if you anesthetize your hand, suddenly you can move it just fine. But if you try to do anything with it, you're going to find that it's basically a useless chunk of flesh attached to your arm. Because really, your ability to do things with your hands relies so heavily on sensory signals from your hand. So the idea is you have this really great technology that allows you to move these these robotic arms just by you know neural signals alone by thought alone but until you close that loop and then kind of send signals back to the brain that says hey this is the consequences of the action that you just made this this arm do they're not going to be clinically relevant
and that's what we're working on. Yeah, and in, in the same way that before people were sort of studying the signals of the brain to understand movement and deconstructing that, translating that to understand how to control a robotic limb, now you guys are doing that same kind of measurement and translation for sensory input. That's right, So, it, but it's backwards now, right? Because now you have sensors on the hand, on the prosthetic hand, that give you information about the shape of the prosthetic hand, you know, what conformation it, it's in, like how, what, what position the digits are relative to one another. Like, is the thumb opposed with the, the index or, or in line with it, for instance? It gives you information about how much, which prosthetic fingertips are touching the object, how much force they're exerting on it. And so what we work on is to devise algorithms to take the output of these sensors, these time, the time-varying signals from these sensors, and convert them into patterns of neural activation in the brain such that the animal or the patient will feel the, the right thing, basically. Yeah, and the challenge of doing that well is that you need a model system that allows you to sort of immediately and effectively translate it to the human condition. And right. That's why you guys work on work on monkeys. Right. Unfortunately, monkeys don't talk, so that's always a challenge, in tr because you know, unlike motor behavior, where there's this 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 very clearly observable thing, which is the 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 cursor or the arm moving in perception there is no observable behavior right yeah. so then you have to sort of devise clever experiments at least we'd like to think they're clever experiments to try to infer what the what the animal feels so how similar and how different are they from from humans like what are the challenges of you going? know for our intents and purposes they're they're similar in every relevant way yeah. they have hands that just the way we do with five fingers they use them in in very similar ways they have broadly the same kinds of sensors or receptors in, in the skin they have very similar brain regions that interpret signals from the hand and very similar properties for instance we and others have been able to predict with incredible quantitative precision how humans will perceive something based on the, the responses that we record from our monkeys we're really trying to understand the brain and neural coding generally. You know, hopefully, what we discover is not just going to be about touch. It's just going to be it's going to be about the brain or the nervous system. And so, one of the things that we've discovered over the years is that there are general principles that apply across different sensory modalities. Let me give you an example. Let me just kind of deconstruct one of the things that we've we've been working on recently. So it's kind of exciting. You know, it still has that that excitement to it. Texture perception. You know, this is something that we're working on the lab right now. We are incredibly good at discerning the surface texture of, of objects by touch. So we can tell, you know, silk from satin from sandpaper. We can tell cheap silk from, from good silk. We are really good at it. In fact, a, a recent study came out that showed that we can discern surface textures that have elements that differ on the orders of tens of, of nanometers. So this is a hundredth of a millimeter, right? The tiny, tiny, tiny differences that we can tell by touch. And so we've been studying, what, how does the, how do we do that? What, what are the, the neural mechanisms what, of this really fine ability to discern textures? And we discovered that there are two different ways in which we discern textures. So one way is, you know, there's sort of, sort of these coarser elements. So, you know, you can think about, you know, for instance, like Braille. Right? If you run your finger across Braille, it kind of has a texture to it, and each little Braille dot sort of digs into your skin, and, and that has a certain texture to it. And so that's represented in a spatial pattern of activation. So it's, you know, basically as you, you run your finger across the Braille, so some of the, the dots poke into your skin and excite some of the receptors at that location, whereas, whereas other receptors are not being poked at 
and therefore they're silent, right? So you have this spatial pattern of activation across this, this population of receptors that basically mirrors the Braille. So wherever there's a dot, there's going to be an excited receptor, and wherever there is no dot, there's going to be no excited, or there's going to be an unexcited receptor. These are the signals that the hands send the brain about texture. So you have this spatial pattern of activation in these in these receptors that is exactly like this kind of receptor activation that you see in the eye, in the retina, right? Where whatever that you're looking at, whatever the spatial configuration of the shape of whatever it is you're looking at is going to be reflected in the shape in the pattern of activation in your retina. So the fancy word for that is isomorphism. You have an isomorphism between the stimulus, the thing out, out there, and the pattern of neural activity that it evokes. And turns out that the way that the sense of touch analyzes this spatial pattern is very similar to the way the visual system analyzes spatial patterns, where if you look into the brain, you find these the same kinds of uh, these feature detectors that are detecting the same kinds of features in both touch and vision. So there you start seeing a general principle of perception that goes beyond just touch or beyond just vision, but it's like this is how the brain solves spatial problems. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense that solutions in one system would be useful anywhere else. That's why Absolutely. we use the same computer algorithms to detect signal from noise in a whole bunch of different systems. I just want to point out that the brain is much better at signal to noise or, or, or signal extraction than any existing computer algorithm. But anyways, that's neither here nor there. So for these coarse textural features, you have this mechanism that looks a lot like a vision-like mechanism of analysis of a spatial pattern. But there are not that many receptors. The density of the receptors in your skin is pretty sparse. So for instance, the two adjacent receptors are maybe two-thirds of a millimeter to a millimeter apart. So that's a that's pretty bad spatial resolution. That's just on your fingertips. That's on your fingertip where yeah. there are the most receptors. So, so how is it that we can discern very fine textural features? Turns out that these receptors actually don't respond at all to fine textural features. But if I say, feel this, right, what are you going to do? You're not just going to plop your finger on it. You're going to run your finger across it. And what happens when you, f you run your finger across it, you have these vibrations that are produced in the skin. And these tiny, tiny vibrations, we're talking tenths of a millimeter or less in amplitude. And different textures are going to produce different vibrations in the skin. And there's a, two other populations of receptors in the skin that are really sensitive to these vibrations and that are going to pick up these vibrations and convey information about the fine features in the texture by transducing the vibrations that these fine features produce. And the, the cool thing is that the way they do this is by creating these really cool temporal patterns of activation. So for instance, if you run your fingers across satin, say, these receptors might go BDD, BDD, BDD. And now if, if you run your, your fingers across silk, they might go D, 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 D. And if it's sandpaper, it's going to be D, 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 you know, something like that. And it's based on these differences in the timing and these temporal patterns. It's like sort of Morse code-like responses to these other populations of afferents that we can distinguish these fine textures one from the other. And that mechanism is much more akin to, because in this mechanism now, we're trying to extract information about oscillations of a sensory epithelium in this case, the skin, and that's much more audition-like. That's what the auditory system does. Well, it's funny. Usually when I think of feeling something with touch, I imagine that there are things in my skin that are the touch part, and then there's the skin that is the rest of it. And you're kind of talking about it like the whole organ is the sensory organ, and they're integrated through the properties of the um, epithelium, for example, the vibrational properties or the tension or the elasticity that all of this combined is what gives us our ability to detect things. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, for sure. So 
let me i can so there's two ways in which that's that's true one way the the receptors are embedded in the skin right so whatever it is you touch you're not touching it directly i mean you're not sensing it directly you're sensing it as experienced by receptors that are that are embedded in the skin so whatever the properties of the skin are they're going to affect how the receptors respond to the thing and therefore they're going to determine what information you have about the thing the other kind of way in which that's true is for instance the fingerprint right we all have fingerprints you know you watch csi we all all have different fingerprints in fact it turns out that you know when you're running your finger across something your fingerprint is interacting with the, the microstructure of that thing and shaping what the receptors are experiencing so for instance if, if i'm a receptor in the in the in the, the skin of, of two people with different fingerprints i'm going to experience something different and chances are so this is something that we're i mean we we make a very clear prediction that people should feel things differently depending on their fingerprints well the other thing that seems sort of surprising and challenging about that is that the skin is something that changes so hand in water for a long time you get wrinkles on your yep. fingertips and when you get old your skin gets a little stretchier and all um, those things affect how you perceive things so this is a very dynamic system over different time scales and somehow we're able to make sense of it it's yes. pretty pretty surprising because the brain is that awesome well yeah it is what do you mean it's pretty awesome <laughs> all right you're fired i'm taking over the show no uh so you know the other thing that's i think a remarkable and more subtle effect is the fact that you know if you took if you you know run your finger across something and you can run it across that thing really slowly or run it across that thing really quickly or run that thing across your finger very slowly or run that thing across your finger very rapidly, it's going to feel the same no matter what. Hmm. But the way the skin is going to respond to it is going to be super different. Yeah. The way the receptors respond to it is going to be very different. But somehow our nervous system is, is able to extract something invariant about that thing. It's, it's able to tell you what that thing is regardless of the the way it's being explored and that it's tr it seems trivially easy to us because you know it's this is the consequence of this incredibly sophisticated neural processing thing that that's going on that we are still trying to figure out yeah the other thing that strikes me as particularly crazy is that we're getting these signals all the time right i'm getting them from my toes right now and i don't even think about it and somehow i'm not overwhelmed by the the noise of this right. incredibly sensitive body that's just picking up all kinds of information constantly. So there's two things that are happening for that. One, I can't speak much about, but it's about attention. So you can attend to different parts of your body yeah. and sort of ignore others. But there's another thing that's sort of working for you, and that is adaptation. So if a receptor is activated by the same stimulus, by you know the same thing over an extended period of time, it stops responding to it. So here's the undergraduate example. You go on a road trip, you're cranking up some tunes, and you're kind of you tend to just turn up the music, turn up the music, and then you take a lunch break. Then it's time for lunch. So you go up, get out of the car, go hopefully not to a fast food because it's poison, and eat lunch for, for 45 minutes or something. And you get back in the car, you turn the car back on, and suddenly the, the music is way too loud. And the reason for that is that your auditory system had been progressively desensitized over time by the music, the loud music, then you get out of the car, it resensitizes, and then that, that music is suddenly way too loud. So that's a general principle of perception that all your sensory system desensitizes when exposed to, to a stimulus for an extended period of time. So all the receptors that are responding to your clothes, say, respond less and less. Turn and down a little Turn bit. them down and eventually just tune them out completely which is good because that just because that's not interesting it's not <laughs> it's not interesting information it's information you can ignore you start ignoring that information right at the receptor level so we talk about a bunch of things sort of generally what what it is you're interested in sensing brains 
limbs, how they work, how we can use that to sort of improve quality of life of people. And then after that first introduction, we went into specifically what are the things you're studying about touch and how we can understand them. So now why don't we just transition into the next logical thing, circling back to the beginning. How have your findings actually been used, and how do you think they are informing our understanding of prosthetics? Going into it, we thought this is just an impossible task. You know, there's you know 89 billion neurons in the brain. You're sticking these electrodes in the brain, creating these completely unnatural patterns of activation. It didn't seem very likely that we would be able to do anything useful. And I think in, over the last few years, it turns out maybe my initial misgivings were uh, misplaced in that I think we've been able to do some pretty cool stuff. So for instance, just to give you the flavor of the kind of thing that, that we've done, one of the important things, you know, when you grasp an object, you want to exert enough pressure on it so that you can pick it up without it slipping from your grasp, but not so much pressure that you will crush it, right? So it's important to have sort of information about how much pressure you're exerting on, on an object. And, you know, with these some of these robotic arms, you can actually crush a tennis ball. So you don't want to be, you know, like if you're shaking somebody's hand, you want to exert a, a socially appropriate amount of pressure on it. So we've, we showed that we were able to train animals to do these this pressure discrimination tasks. So we would press on their skin with different amounts of pressure, and they, they learned how to discriminate the amount of pressure that we press their skin with. And then we were actually able to have these animals do the exact same task, but instead of touching their, their actual limb, we touched a prosthetic limb and a prosthetic finger and, and conveyed information about the, the, the pressure exerted on the prosthetic finger through electrical stimulation of the brain. And we were able to show that these animals could do the task just as well, whether we pressed on their skin or on this prosthetic finger. So you pressed on the prosthetic and that they registered that in their brain through the sensors. Yeah, so were... we had the sensors were attached to our algorithm, which then electrically stimulated their brain in ways that I won't get into. And that conveyed to the animal a, a perceptive pressure that was perceptually equivalent to a natural percept of pressure. It was not, I don't want to claim that it was identical, but it was perceptually equivalent. Well, I mean, yeah, the goal is to make usable structures that That's people right. can... That's right, to the extent that it does. You know, imagine you have 22 degrees of freedom in your hand. There's 22 different ways your hand can, can, can move. There's, you know, basically an infinite number of ways in which your hand can be touched. So if these sensations are completely unnatural, then you would have to relearn that from scratch as, a, as an adult. And so it's important that these sensations are at least somewhat intuitive. Otherwise, I, th I think the task is impossible. So you just described uh, application in the model system that you use. Yes. Um, but so where are we? Where are we in humans right now? Well, I'm very excited to report that the work that we did uh, here at the University of Chicago was sent to the FDA. In order to do human trials, you have to demonstrate that it's safe, which we did, and I didn't talk about, but we did a whole study to, to demonstrate that it's safe, that you don't burn holes in the brain when you electrically stimulate it, and show that it works, that it's efficacious, that you can actually evoke these these robust systematic percepts through electrical stimulation. And so we, we did these experiments, we sent them to the FDA, and the FDA approved human trials, which are set to begin at other institutions very shortly, sometime in the next couple of months. The people who sign up for these kinds of studies are not told, hey, we're going to restore your sense of touch. What, what they are told is you're going to be part of this scientific effort that eventually will culminate, we hope, in the restoration of sensory motor function.
These patients are, are tetraplegic patients, so people okay. who are paralyzed from the neck down, who have no sensation from the neck down. And so the, the parts of the brain that we're talking about interfacing with are parts of the brain that are not useful to them, that they, do, they no longer use because they, they control parts of the body that are no longer attached to them. So the stakes are less, you know, they're lower than if I did this to you now. But, you know, they're motivated in that, you know, so there are tetraplegic, human tetraplegic patients that have been used for motor experiments. And for the first time, they sort of could sort of move something, you know, with by thought. And that was a, a, a liberating and, and powerful experience. So there's the promise of that, to have some really interesting experience. Yeah. So, for instance, these tetraplegic patients are going to feel something below the neck for the first time since their injury. It's very exciting. The other thing, which we haven't really hit on, which relates to your ability to touch things. Uh-oh. So, fuzz. So, fuzz, which is spelled F-U-Z-Z-Z. -Z. Uh, this is a band that uh, actually another prof neuroscience professor, David Friedman, and I founded, I don't know, doesn't seem that, that that long ago, but it might be like two and a half years ago or something, maybe three years ago. Um, it, we are a instrumental funk band. And I know what you're thinking right now. You're probably thinking, God, that's, they're probably terrible, which would be my first thought probably if I were you. But in fact, you know, the other three members of the band are legitimate musicians, and I think Dave and I hold our own. Um, and we play around town. Let's listen to which song you want us to play. Oh, Robo, Robo Jones is fine. Okay. All right. Well, thank you again for joining us. Thanks for having video. me. It was fun. All right. Let's listen to a little fuzz on our way out. Mm -hmm. 